0: We continue our journey through the book of romans today by talking about uh, romans chapter 6 and, and romans chapter 6 represents kind of a a transitionary point uh in the book so for those of us who have heard the first 10 weeks of sermons and the first five chapters of romans and are wondering why does paul keep repeating himself this is some new information that he's bringing to us this morning and the title of today's sermon is walking in newness the freedom to follow in 2009 this 13-story building as shown in shanghai unexpectedly fell to the ground the structure matches the surrounding buildings in aesthetic appeal it looks to be in in sturdy condition but it turned out that it was no match for the Chinese rainy season. And what should have been a rather routine test uh, for the structure brought it down to its core. And investigators and architects have blamed the incident on a faulty foundation. And I think by looking at those bottom two pictures, it may not take a rocket scientist to come to that conclusion. However, the point is, the foundation of any building is crucial for the longevity of that building. And so the first question we have this morning is, where is your foundation? Where is our foundation? And this theme of, of foundations, it runs through the seams of Scripture. And in fact, it's such a key theme. It is so important through uh, to these biblical authors that Jesus himself spends a significant amount of time Talking about this idea of having a solid foundation. Many of you are familiar with the parable that he tells in Matthew chapter 17. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. So Christ himself is very, very invested in where you and I have our foundation. And Jesus tells this parable because it's very true to human experience that regardless of the exteriors that we have, those are irrelevant if our foundation is not on solid rock. And just like that building in 2009 in Shanghai can come crumbling to the ground in the rainy season, even the most put-together people can come crumbling down when we face one of the various storms that this life has to offer. So the question remains, where is your foundation? Paul has spent five chapters uh, building rebuilding, phrasing, and rephrasing kind of a very similar argument. And the reason that he does this is because he is building a foundation for us. Through the first five chapters, he is preaching this message of saved by the grace of God alone, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. And, and he talks so much about this, and, and we wonder, Paul, why are you spending so much time repeating yourself and I believe that the reason that Paul spends so much time on this on this one central theme is that it is crucial for us to have this foundation built before we can go any further into talking about what the Christian experience looks like if we are not founded in the the grace and salvation that Jesus offers for us then then we are blindly walking in this life and just like the, the foundation that we saw in the building in Shanghai, many times in order to build upon a site that has already had a building, we have to clear away the rubble. You see, if, if the Chinese government decided to build a new house upon that foundation, what they'd first have to do is go in and excavate and, and, bear, and, and dig out all of that old foundation. And we have to do the same thing in our Christian experience because many of us, myself included, have been brought up to believe that it is our works that save us. And, and we are well-meaning people. We're talking about the law. We're, we're talking about the, the, the responsibility that we have to live the law. But if our foundation is not set in Jesus, our building is destined to collapse. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul has to clear away all of these misconceptions. And it takes five chapters, or in our modern time, it takes ten weeks to do that because it is so countercultural. We live in America, a society that tells us that if you want something, you have to work for it. And Jesus comes in and tells us, By the way, I've done everything for you already. And this is something that comes as a surprise to us because it is so different god is so different than our expectations and this is why paul spends five chapters repeating himself and finally in romans chapter 6 he brings up this new idea he says what shall we say then shall we go on sinning that grace may increase and the thing that i love maybe the most about paul is he's very intellectual and he's he's very clearly led by the spirit of god because often in his letters to congregations, he brings up potential objections. He brings up questions that the congregation is undoubtedly thinking. And in this particular instance, Paul is speaking directly as us to a congregation. One of the things that I've heard and I've, I've dialogued with, with some of us about and I've expressed my own concerns is, okay, if we're saved by grace, what does that mean for our lives? Are we allowed to to do whatever we want if we're saved by grace? Or are you preaching once saved, always saved? You know, we ask these questions and we paraphrase what Paul is bringing up. And Paul brings this up because he knows that it is at the forefront of our minds. He knows that it is in our hearts. So rather than push it to the side, Paul addresses it head on. And we have good reason to be concerned. You know, those of us, like I said, myself included, who have who have kind of been reluctant to maybe accept this message as fully as, as we may otherwise, are afraid to do so because we're afraid of the implications of what grace means. We're afraid that if we accept this radical grace of God, that we will throw away the moral standards that we've been brought up with, that we'll forsake this commandment lifestyle that we believe that we've been called to as Adventists. We don't want to make exceptions that will end up compromising the true things that we stand for. So, Paul, what is the answer? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Right away, Paul says in all capital letters with an exclamation point, by no means The very next verse, Paul gives the answer to this fundamentally important question, but yet we're left with this dissonance. Because for five chapters, Paul has been preaching grace, 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 and then in chapter 6, he says, oh, by the way, you still have to work. How do we reconcile these differences? Doesn't it seem strange that Paul would spend so much time building this foundation of grace only to turn and do a complete 180 and say, your lifestyle is still important. There seems to be a a contradiction in Paul's theology. So how do we reconcile these things? And again, I think the answer is found in our foundation. Because God is intimately concerned with our foundations. We can model our lives after the greatest people. Our exteriors can be great. We can live morally upstanding lives and constantly seek to do good. But if we are not grounded in the correct place and in the right foundation, we are destined to fall apart. Jesus is the only firm salvation. Jesus is the solid rock on which we stand. As the old hymn says, "'All other ground is sinking sand.'" And our foundation is extremely important. Though we may look the same on the outside, we will know our foundation when the storms of life come. In Acts chapter 4, it says, Jesus is the stone which the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is a message that has, has been rejected in our community, in our church, and potentially even in our own congregation because it's so counterintuitive. In uh, Corinthians, it says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, we know what salvation is, and we know that it is Jesus, Jesus. And we can't do anything else before we are firmly established in the fact that God, and through Jesus, is the one that saves us. So now that we have that foundation set, we can ask the question and move on and say, what does salvation look like? We know what it is, we know that we have it in Jesus, but then what does it look like? The crazy thing about the debate between grace and works in America and in the Christian church and the Adventist church and in our own congregation is that both sides are essentially arguing for the same thing. Both sides are saying that we need to live a morally upright life. Both sides are saying that we need to take the commandments of God seriously and live a life so that others can see Jesus through us. You see, Paul in pushing grace is not implying that we shouldn't work. He just wants us to get rid of the self-deception that comes with thinking that we can save ourselves. He wants us to understand the nature of Christ's gift and accept it. Because true acceptance of that gift will be far more transformative than any legalistic idea that we can save ourselves. Grace creates gratitude. And the way that we live will become grounded when we are rooted in Jesus. So the question again this morning that we continue to come back to is where is your foundation? Because there are serious implications to where our roots are as Christians. And though our our trees or though our physical appearance, maybe our actions will look the same, we will tell where we are grounded when the storms come. And by believing that, that we can save ourselves, by having that foundation built upon the sand, if you will, we do a couple of uh, very, very detrimental things. The first thing that we do is is we devalue Christ's sacrifice. When we believe that we can save ourselves, we make this, this sacrifice of God, this coming to to man to save him, to live a perfect life and to die for our atonement. We push that aside and say that we can save ourselves. The second thing we do is is we get attached to this idea of our own self-righteousness. And we begin to take ourselves too seriously, as if we're the ones that can work our way into salvation. And the third thing that we do when we think that we can save ourselves, and perhaps the, the most damaging thing that we can do as Christians, is that when we believe that we can save ourselves, we begin to play God. How many times, if we're focused on our own lifestyles, as far as getting us into heaven... That directly translates into, oh, I'm doing this, but he's not doing that. And I can tell that he's not going to be saved because I saw him drinking wine and it wasn't even communion. You know, I can tell, I can tell that you're not going to be saved because I was walking to the grocery store the other night and I saw you outside of the door at a nightclub. You're not going to heaven. Or, or classic as Adventist, I can tell that you're not being saved because you go to church on Sunday and not Saturday. We begin to play God when we start to look at our own righteousness, and in the turn, we, we try to deceive ourselves into thinking that we can tell who is going to be saved and who is going to be lost. And that is a role that Scripture leaves fundamentally in God's hands. And that is a beautiful thing. Salvation is in God's hands. And when we aren't portraying a gracious, graceful Savior Jesus, and instead portraying this this judgmental God, we are not only twisting and skewing the message that we have in the gospel, but we are doing a, a, an extreme disservice to God, to our community, and to ourselves. When Jesus is not our foundation, we are destined to crumble. Matthew chapter 7 says, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So let me again say emphatically that we are not suggesting that being saved by Jesus means that you can do whatever you want. We hold ourselves to the same standard and and even to the same test because if we are grounded in Jesus, if we are rooted in his righteousness, then we will begin to grow and emulate him. And you will be able to tell by the decisions that we make, by the lifestyle that we lead, and by the fruits that we have. So we'll continue in Romans, and that's a typo. It's Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. It says, All of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. Christ came into this world to defeat sin. And he not only lived a sinful life, the Gospels tell us that Jesus went into the depths of human experience, even unto death, so that he could conquer that. Later in Romans, we see the, the, the foundational verse, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. In other words, Christ went to the very end of the road, for sin. He went to the farthest possible spectrum of sin, and by defeating that, he also gained victory over every single step along the way. Jesus gained victory over death, but he also gained victory over the sins that we struggle with on a daily basis. And by by gaining this victory, he has invited us to participate with him by having a new life. Verse 6 says, Our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin would be done away with. Anyone who has died has been set free from sin. You see, Jesus took the initiative for us. The Bible tells us that he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. In order for this to happen, though, we must accept all of Jesus. The great thing about Jesus is that he not only extends an invitation of an empty grave. In other words, he not only gives us a hope for an eternity with him, but he also extends to us the cross. And he says, give me the things that I came to set you free from. Because God knows that sin is detrimental. He knows that it is decaying and he knows that it separates us from God. Jesus, by offering, by extending to us the cross, invites us to pick up our cross and daily die to ourselves. And he invites us back into community with God by bridging that gap for us and by inviting us to rid ourselves of the things that we know that separate us from him. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. There is yet another thing that Christ has extended to us. In addition to this hope that he gives us, in addition to this invitation to get rid of the things that separate us, he has offered us companionship. He has given us the chance to, like Abraham, walk with God. This means that we are able to cherish the things that God cherishes. We are able to love the things that God loves. We are able to do the things that he does. In other words, we are able to become the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. We need to open ourselves to the Spirit of God so that we can say, it is no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives for God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Alive to God. In other words, getting rid of the things that represent death. If we are going to be alive in Christ Jesus and fully embrace the new life, the newness of life that he offers to us, then it is only right and it is only fit that we begin to make progress and we begin to forsake the things that are holding us down. If sin is representational of death and Christ is representational of life, then the two do not mesh. And once we establish that we are saved by the free gift of Jesus, we also take his invitation not to wait for some kingdom when he comes a second time, but to begin to live the kingdom now. To begin to walk in a newness of life that says, God, I take your grace seriously. I take your sacrifice seriously. And because of this, I accept your invitation to walk in newness of life and to forsake the sin that has set me back and that has represented a death in me for so, so long. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Being in grace does not mean that we are free to do whatever we want. As Christians, we associate grace with victory. We associate grace with victory. Because Jesus overcame death, we no longer have to be under sin. And we are set free to to live the lives that we were initially meant to. We are set free to live in harmony with God. We have the freedom to walk in newness of life. One uh, Christian scholar puts it this way, and because it is in him that we are really free, he himself is our direction. Our life is characterized by the will to seek God and find him, to follow his direction. This idea that we are saved by grace is, is our foundation. It is something that we are rooted in. It is something that we are grounded in. But just like any tree, and just like any building, the the process does not stop at a foundation. The foundation is by far the most important thing in any building, and in any tree, but it is not the only thing. Our foundation shows where we are grounded, but it does not end there, and our story does not end there. When we are grounded in Christ the solid rock, and in the assurance that we are saved by Him alone, and nothing else we can do, The ironic thing is, is that we begin to want to do everything in gratitude for that grace. We begin to want to live a life that glorifies the God that has made us free. We want to live a life that is as true to the freedom that Christ has offered us. If you'll close with me by by singing the new hymn, You make beautiful things, you make beautiful things out of the dust. And you make beautiful things, you make beautiful things out of us. May we walk in that newness today.